Once again, good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. We're continuing right along now in the series entitled, Out of Bondage into Abundance. And we have come now to part six. There are seven parts in all. We are now embarking on part six. And if you are just joining us, uh, we have notes and recordings for all of the previous sections to this study. Uh, those are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And you can get both the outline notes and hopefully any of the recordings there. Uh, we do broadcast live on MixLR.com. You can also follow us there. Uh, look for New Life Ministries. And again, these are also recorded for future reference as well. Without any further ado, I can't wait to get into this next part. And I want to say to begin tonight, this is far more than just a Bible study. The Word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And what we have been looking at for a number of weeks is the historical account of Israel coming out of slavery in Egypt and traveling through the wilderness for 40 years, and that's basically where we ended last time. And now we're coming to the good part. It's out of bondage into abundance. And now their wilderness wanderings are over. It's about time for them to cross the River Jordan, go into the land of Canaan, and to begin to possess what God promised for them. And again, all of this literally happened. <clears throat> These are historical events. This is not fiction. It's not an allegory. These events really took place, and they're recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures. However, there's a principle that you find throughout the Bible. Very often, these Old Testament stories, which of course God wrote the story, he's the author of all of these stories, there's a bigger story to be told. God is using what are known as types and shadows in the Old Testament to point toward a far greater, and in most cases, an eternal reality. And we've been seeing this time and again already throughout this study. The rock that gave them drink in the desert, you read about that in Exodus 17. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that rock that followed them was Christ. Well, you won't find that in the book of Exodus. But through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, Paul understood that rock is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ, who gives us living waters. Exodus 12, we learned about the Passover lamb. Every Israelite family took a lamb, they killed it, and they applied the blood to their door, and when the angel of death passed over, they were spared. That's why it's called the Passover. You can read about it in Exodus 12. It really happened. 
Two and a half million slaves were set free in one single night because of the celebration of the Passover in Egypt. But again, coming over to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So, all of these pictures, types, and shadows from the Old Testament, they represent an eternal, a spiritual reality. And basically, this whole journey of Israel coming out of bondage, going into the promised land, it's a picture of the spiritual journey that each one of us is on. God brought us out of the slavery of sin. He takes us through deserts, trials, chastenings, disciplinings, and all of the rest, but ultimately he wants to bring us into an abundant life, an overflowing, overcoming life through and in Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you tonight, it doesn't matter how long the desert is, it doesn't matter how many giants or battles or trials there are, God has a place of abundance for us. And he's going to bring us in there. The children of Israel, they were told repeatedly by God, I'm going to go ahead of you, I'm going to take you into a land that flows with milk and honey. And I'm excited tonight. God is doing just some amazing things in these days. And I think he wants all of us to raise our faith to a different level where we start believing that whatever God said, he's going to do it. And the basis of this whole study can be boiled down to two words, faith and obedience. And we ended last time at looking at the two reasons why most of the Israelites who came out of Egypt, out of bondage, never entered into that abundance. They never entered into God's rest. And we read about it in Hebrews 3 and 4. They could not enter in, not because of giants, not because of enemy nations, not because of walls, not because of any problem that was facing them. They were their own enemies. They could not enter in because of unbelief and disobedience. And that I cannot get out of my mind. The devil and all of the demons and all the powers and principalities, they are not able to keep the weakest and the smallest one of us from entering into all that God has for us. The only thing that will keep us out is us. Our own unbelief, our own disobedience. So, be encouraged tonight. We can enter in through faith, and all we have to do is surrender to God, obey His Word, listen to His voice, do His will, and we are assured of that abundant life that Jesus spoke about. Alright, fasten your seatbelts, because this is going to get real good now. We've come to part six, which we've entitled, 
conquering seven nations. And after the 40 years of wandering in the desert, and we explained last time why it was 40 years, one year for each day in that uh, spy mission that the 12 spies went on into the promised land, it was born out of a spirit of unbelief. And that's why God was so upset about the outcome. Everybody got discouraged. Everybody wanted to quit and go back to Egypt. And only two out of all of the original Israelites that left Egypt were able to finally enter in. Joshua and Caleb, because they had a different spirit. They had a spirit of faith, and they had a spirit of obedience. So, after that 40-year-long time in the desert, Moses has died. Joshua is now the new commander of Israel's army. The Israelites have finally come to the edge of the Promised Land. They've come to the River Jordan. Joshua has now been affirmed as their new leader, Moses' replacement, and he and the Israelites are now told it's time to go in and start taking possession of the land that God promised them. And we will begin our story tonight in the book of Joshua, chapter 1. Joshua 1, and we'll read from verse 1 down to verse 6. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them to the Israelites. Notice that. The land I am about to give to them. Get ready to cross. I am about to do something. Verse 3, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. So, God is not only affirming Joshua as Israel's new leader, He is affirming and confirming once again his promise to the ancestors, which is still in force to this day that he's speaking, the land I swore to your ancestors, I am going to give it to you. So, that's why we call it the promised land. God promised it, and he's now about to give it to them. And... It's interesting because this 
Part 6, we've entitled Conquering Seven Nations. And already it's starting to sound a bit challenging. Well, if God's giving it to them, why do they have to conquer anything? And we'll be explaining that a lot more, but basically, they didn't have to do anything. God was going to do all the conquering, but they just needed to trust Him, obey Him, and follow Him in, and He would do the rest. And even their initial entrance into the promised land, it required another miracle, just as they needed a miracle when they needed to get out of Egypt at the Red Sea. The waters of the Red Sea had to part for them to get free from Egypt. Now they've come to a different body of water. They've come to the River Jordan, and here again, they need a miracle from God because, by no coincidence, they've come to the river when it's at flood stage. It's impassable. They cannot cross the river, and they're going to need to see another miracle of God that will enable them to cross over on dry ground. Sound familiar? Just what happened at the Red Sea. Cross over on dry ground, and this would renew their faith that God was with them, and he was going to drive out every enemy before them. Let's move now to Joshua chapter 3, and we'll begin reading from verse 3. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. I've always loved that verse. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow... The Lord will do amazing things among you. So, they're given a little bit of a preview. Get ready. Prepare yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. Tomorrow, you're going to see the Lord. Tomorrow, you're going to see God at work. Get ready. Verse 6. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. Verse 8, Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Now, this is going to be a step of faith, because if you read the whole chapter, you'll find out very clearly there that it's at flood stage. This is not exactly a good time to be dipping your foot in the river. But he tells the priests, go ahead, stand in the river. Verse 9, Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And verse 10 is extremely important. If you're following the notes, I've put all of this in bold print. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, 
Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Now, just pause there for a minute. Those are indeed the seven nations we're going to be studying about in this part six. Conquering seven nations. This is one of a number of places where you'll find all seven of them listed together. Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. So before there's even the rattling of a sword, before there's any conquering, any fighting, any conflict or confrontation whatsoever, God says, I'm going to show you something today in the river so that you will know that I am with you. Note verse 10 again. This is how you will know that the living God is among you. That's one important thing they needed to know. But there's a second thing. And that he will certainly drive out before you. And then he lists those seven nations. Okay, so what is this amazing thing that God is going to do that is going to let them know, A, he is among them, and B, he's going to drive out all these seven enemy nations. Verse 11. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, verse 13, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Now that's a miracle. Water that's flowing downhill in a stream or a river, it doesn't just stop. Something miraculous has to stop the force of gravity and the force of that water flowing downhill. God says, as soon as the priests set foot in the water, the waters flowing downstream are going to stop, and they're going to stand up in a heap. Note the similarities, again, between this experience and the experience 40 years earlier in the Red Sea, where God made the waters pile up on either side of the Israelites so they could pass through on dry ground. Verse 14, So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest, yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. 
the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. So their first steps into the promised land required a miracle. Once again, they needed to see the salvation of God, the power of God, so that they would know that the Lord was still with them and He was going ahead of them to drive out every enemy that was in their path. And as soon as they crossed into the promised land, the very next thing that had to happen was this whole generation, remember these were all the young people below 20 years of age uh, who were either kids when they left Egypt or they were born along the way in the wilderness. The older generation all died out in the wilderness. This new generation, they now needed to be circumcised. And so in Joshua 5, before anything else can happen, they had to be circumcised. Uh, let's read Joshua 5, verses 2 to 9. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeah Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. And I would just remind you, with the exception of two, Joshua and Caleb. Next verse. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness forty years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. There's yet another reminder of what we were just talking about. They died because they did not obey. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way, and after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp, until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal simply means rolling away. So the reproach of Egypt, all of that old life, the memories of Egypt, and even of the wilderness, all of that is being rolled off of them now. This is a whole new life they're embarking on as they enter into the land flowing with milk and honey. The next thing is significant. 
In the very next verse, Joshua 5.10, we read, On the evening of the fourteenth day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. So, the first Passover to be celebrated in the Promised Land, in Canaan. Very significant. Now remember, for 40 years in the wilderness, God fed them with manna, the the bread from heaven, angels' food. Um, This was their supernatural food for 40 years to get them through that wilderness journey. That manna stopped, and the day after they celebrated the Passover, the manna stopped falling, and they began to eat the fruit of Canaan. Another very significant event. Next two verses, Joshua 5, 11, and 12. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. For that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. There's one more extremely significant event that takes place in Joshua 5. All of this is in preparation for them to begin to move and take possession of the land. But we need to talk about this one a little bit because this is extremely important. Joshua 5, verses 13 to 15. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him, in some of the translations, I think in the New King James Version, for instance, you'll find man is capitalized, which gives you a little hint what's going on here. He saw a man standing in front of him with a, with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? I love this. Verse 14. Neither. Neither. You got the question wrong, Joshua. You don't know who you're asking. Let's get all of this straight now. I'm not for you. Neither am I for your enemies. You need to know who I am. Let's look at this again. Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, and again, the New King James capitalizes he. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord. Joshua was commander of the armies of Israel, but this is the commander of the army of the Lord. As commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Joshua realizes who this is. 
Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Why is this so important? It's important because Joshua needed this revelation that the battle was not his. The battle was the Lord's. And even though Joshua was the commander of Israel's army, the commander of the army of the Lord was in front of him. And Joshua needed to understand he's going to be taking his orders from this commander, the supreme commander of the army of the Lord. And all of the Israelites, likewise, needed to understand that God was at the head of their armies. God was their commander-in-chief, and that their conquest of Canaan was not going to be their battle. It would be the Lord's. And so these seven nations that needed to be conquered, this was not going to be their battles, their battle. It would be the Lord's. Now, they've celebrated Passover. The manna has stopped. They're in the promised land now. They're beginning to eat the fruit of the land. They've had this fresh encounter with the commander of the army of the Lord. And now they are going to begin to understand things that were spoken 40 years earlier to Moses at the burning bush where he had a similar experience of taking his sandals off and understanding that he was also standing on holy ground. Let's go back 40 years to the burning bush for a minute and refresh our memory that it was way back at the burning bush God began to tell them about these different nations that were occupying the promised land. Exodus 3 and verse 8. God told Moses there, I have come down to deliver them, the Israelites, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. So, many, many years earlier, God had already been preparing them for the fact that this beautiful land, this promised land, land flowing with milk and honey, streams and valleys, it drinks in rain from the heaven, and all of that. 
it's also the home to some enemy nations. And God didn't give a whole lot of detail at the burning bush because they needed 40 more years before he had to give them any more information about those nations. Now as they're approaching the time where they're going to be engaged with these enemies, God starts giving them some more information. And in Exodus 23, uh, starting with verse 20, we now begin to get some more insight, some more knowledge about just what God is going to do with these seven nations. And I'm reading from the New King James here, starting with verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. And if you read this in the New King James, all of the pronouns here are capitalized. Beware of him. Do not provoke him. Even the word angel is capitalized, indicating that this is not your ordinary garden variety angel, if there is such a thing. This is the Lord. This is actually a manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And it's God himself. My name is in him. Verse 22, But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you in, and here they are again, to the Amorites and the Hittites, the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Important words. I will cut them off. So, every time these enemies are mentioned... God assures the Israelites, don't worry about them. I'm going to take care of them. You just trust me. You obey my angel, obey my voice, and everything will go well for you. Verse 24, You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them, and completely break down their sacred pillars. Verse 27, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Now just pause here for a minute. Notice the irony in this whole story. God has repeatedly been telling these Israelites, don't worry about the giants, 
don't worry about all these ites, Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, whatever ites are in there. Don't worry about them. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to destroy them before you. I'm going to put such a fear in them and such confusion in them that they, listen to these words carefully, they will turn their backs and run. The amazing thing is, the first part of that actually happened. And we'll look at this later on. But when Joshua sends two spies in to Jericho and meets the harlot Rahab there, she informs the spies, they've already heard about the Israelites and their God, and they're all melting with fear. All these enemy nations are scared to death because they hear the Israelites are coming and the God of Israel is with them. But what happened? The Israelites were even more afraid. They said, we can't go in there. These giants will gobble us up. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes. Forget it. We cannot do it. They turned their backs and ran, and they all died in the desert. What irony. If only we would trust God. The things that we fear, we would find out, they're actually afraid of us. Because when God is with us, who can be against us? I don't care how small we are, how small we are in number. Just one of us can chase a thousand. God says your enemies will turn their backs to you. And now we come to my favorite part. Verse 28. God is telling them, I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I will send hornets before you. I don't know if you've ever been chased by hornets. I have. I don't know if you've ever been stung by hornets. I have. They will pursue you relentlessly. They will chase you and chase you and chase you until you are far, far, far away from their hive. And in the process, many of them will sting you. I'll never forget Years ago, when we were kids, we used to play a lot of softball. It's baseball, but it's a big, uh, a larger ball than the one that's used in professional baseball. And we were playing the game one day, and someone hit the ball, and it went into a thicket, went into the bushes. Well, I was sent in to fetch the ball. And I went into the bushes, and I located a round gray object about the size of the softball. And without doing any further tests or checks, I grabbed the round gray object and started to head back toward the baseball field. One minor problem. It wasn't the baseball 
it was the hive of what is called the bald-faced hornet. They're very common in our area. They're the ones that make the great big round gray paper hives that you sometimes see hanging from trees. Well, this was a smaller one. It hadn't reached its full size yet, but it already had plenty of hornets inside of it. So when I grabbed that paper hive and pulled it from the branch that it was attached to, needless to say, I had hundreds of hornets chasing me. And no one needed to tell me, Wayne, run, run as fast as you can. I ran and ran and ran, but sadly it wasn't before being stung multiple times by the hornets that I had stirred up. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. In other words, you may not even know where all these Hivites are. The hornets will find them out. And when a hornet stings them, then you'll know exactly where they are, and you can finish them off. I will drive them out before you. If you study over passages like this one, notice how many times God says, I will, I will, I will send my fear, I will cause confusion, I will make your enemies turn their backs, I will send hornets, I will, I will. This is all about what God promised to do for them. Thus, its name, the promised land. Verse 29 is interesting. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. <clears throat> little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Now, when the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness had finally come to an end, just before what we've read in Joshua took place, when they actually entered in, God, through Moses, had enumerated these seven nations. And I want to go through the list again, and this will give us kind of an outline of what we're going to be doing in coming weeks in part six of this Bible study. We're told in Deuteronomy 1 and verse 3 that it was the 40th year, the first day of the 11th month. This is the end of the 40-year wandering. And here, Moses lists these same seven nations that we read earlier <clears throat> in the book of Joshua. We find out a few more details here that are important, however, and I'd like to read Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 6. Deuteronomy 7, from verse 1 to 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and He drives out before you, notice again the emphasis, God is going to drive these out, and He drives out before you, 
many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. Uh-oh. Larger and stronger than you. This was no secret. God had been telling them about this long before they entered in. These nations are powerful. They're stronger than you are. They're larger than you are, but they're not stronger than I am. That's why I am promising you I'll drive them out before you. From verse 2. When the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Notice that. God has already delivered them over to you. They're already defeated. Now you destroy them. Finish them off. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to, to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people, and here's a very key word here, holy to the Lord your God. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now, we're going to be coming back and looking at various parts of this passage that we've just read. But it's extremely important for us to note right up front, these nations, God wanted to wipe them out. And we'll learn a little further along here that they were evil, they were wicked, and they were perverse. They were idol worshippers, they had sexual immorality and perversion in their lifestyle, and God wanted to destroy them. He wanted to wipe them out. Stop downstairs. So, I'm told that the broadcast stopped, but I think it's still going. We'll finish anyway. Uh, sorry for that interruption. Um, he doesn't want them mingling with these nations, learning their customs, making any treaties or agreements with them. He wants them to be holy. Holy means separate. He doesn't want them to mix in any way with these seven nations. And... What we want to look at next time is why seven? Notice God specifically tells them there are seven 
of these nations. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, interesting, seven nations larger and stronger than you. Well, I'll just introduce it, and then we'll look at this more carefully next time. Seven is always used in the Bible as a number of perfection, completion, or fullness. And what we'll see is God allowed evil to come to its fullness in the promised land before he sent the children of Israel in there to defeat and to drive out all of their wickedness. And many, many years, even before Moses and the burning bush, God first started talking about all of this to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, where he told him that his descendants were going to be strangers and slaves in a foreign country for 400 years, and when that 400 years was completed, he would punish the nation that they served as slaves, and afterward they would come out with great possessions. But here's what we want to look at in much more detail next time. In that prophecy that God gave to Abraham, he told them why it was going to be for 400 years. And here's what God told Abraham. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Full measure. The Hebrew word there means completion or fullness. So there were seven of these wicked nations, and the sin of these wicked nations had to come to full measure, had to come to some kind of completeness or perfection, if you will, before God was going to drive them out. And next time, we will see that these seven nations were wicked. They were involved in evil practices, homosexuality, immorality, perversion, idolatry. And God told the children of Israel that he was so grieved with these evil nations that he was going to cause the land to vomit them out. And... He even went further and warned the Israelites, if you do the same things these nations were doing, the land will vomit you out also. So, these seven nations, I'll list them again, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, were larger and stronger than the Israelites, and we're going to study each one of these nations one by one, and with the help of the Holy Spirit and many, many scriptures, we're going to try to identify what some of these nations might represent in our lives, things that need to be conquered, defeated, 
and driven out if we're going to truly enter into God's promised land for our lives. That abundant, overflowing life in Christ. We'll stop there, and next time we'll continue from right here on page 85, if you are following in the notes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is amazing. It's even more amazing when the Holy Spirit begins to unfold the meaning of your word. And God, you reveal to us these secrets, things that have been hidden in your word, but are now being revealed to us by your Holy Spirit. God, you've called us out of darkness in the marvelous light, out of the bondage of sin into the abundant life that Jesus spoke about. And Lord, you are teaching us how to be more than conquerors through Christ, that just as the Israelites had seven nations larger and stronger than they that had to be defeated, destroyed utterly and totally, Lord, you are revealing to us certain sins, certain evil and dark powers and forces that have to be conquered, have to be defeated in our lives if we are truly to enter in and to possess all that you have for us. And God, we know that you are with us, you go before us, you will send the hornet of your Holy Spirit ahead of us, drive out every demon, destroy every sin, every power of darkness, and give us the land. Give us all that you've promised for us. Father, I thank you for each and every one joining us in this study tonight. I pray, O oh God, that you would strengthen our faith. Help us to be obedient to your voice. Let us not repeat the mistakes of the Israelites through unbelief and disobedience. But we want to enter into your rest through faith and through obedience. Do not let our faith fail. Strengthen our faith. Help us to believe your every word, your every promise. Fill us with a spirit of faith. Give us a different spirit like Joshua and Caleb had. Fully confident that the Lord is with us. We are more than conquerors and we can take the land. God, bless this word to each and every one of our hearts. Keep us as the apple of your eye. Complete the good work which you have started in each and every one of our lives. We pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen.